Good morning, BCBC. This this weekend has is all about wedding for me. Uh, yesterday, as uh, Pastor Brian just mentioned, there were two weddings. I was doing the one for Kenneth and Ginny, and I I, I really miss Chris and and Tiffany. I did the uh, premarriage counseling for them. They, I mean, I love them. They're just a lovely couple. And then today, uh, after the membership meeting, I will be doing another wedding outdoor at 5 o'clock. And I will be wearing a suit. So your free ice cream, I'm really interested. And I think I'll need one, at least one in my system before I head towards the sun. So, uh, can you put my PowerPoint up? Yes, okay. You guys are doing this uh, series in Psalms, and, and, and I just love it, because Psalms is my, is my favorite genre in, in the Bible. But reading Psalms is easy and yet difficult. It's easy because Psalms are words spoken on our behalf. The Bible, for the most part, is top-down. God's words revealed to us from above. And yet, Psalms are words, although still inspired by God, meant to be bottom up, spoken on behalf of us. As a result, Psalms are easy to read because it speaks for situations that we can really relate to. A lot of times, we can put our own situation right into a particular psalm. And that psalm will become our psalm. The darkest valley in Psalm 23, for example, can be any kind of struggles that we experience. Sickness, job loss, broken relationship, injustice, you name it. We have no problem putting the psalmers in our own shoes. Yet, psalms are very difficult to read. For, for most psalms, we lack critical information in order to figure out the what, the where, the when, the who, the why of the psalm. Who wrote it? In what situation? What's the problem the psalmist is dealing with? Why the psalmist is so thankful or despair? Most of the time, those questions are unanswered, leaving us without a context in order to put ourselves into the psalmist's shoes. And as a result, if we want to dig deeper into the psalm, we might get frustrated at best, or misuse what the Bible says at worst. For example, how do we understand a verse such as Psalm 137 verse 9, where it says, Happy are those who seize your infants and dash them against the rocks. I mean, we can't really use it for VBS, can we? Try next year. I mean, we know it cannot mean what it says here literally. We, we know that, and that's right. But without a proper context, some, some of the Psalms, like this one, are very hard to understand. In this postmodern world that, that we're in, the meaning of a piece of literature, a story, a song, or even news are more and more given by the readers. Meanings are given by the readers. There is no absolute meaning of any piece. You, as readers, 
give meaning after reading it. Our culture is getting more and more interested in interpretation than proposition. For example, we might prefer to see a picture like this one than being told this, a sad child. With a picture, you can decide whether it is a sad child or a sleeping child or a child getting really bored in reading Psalms. But with a proposition, a sad child, we lose the freedom to interpret it. This readers-driven approach does not only happen to literature, it also happens to news that we receive. So whether the news is, is fake or not is really up to you. But Psalms are, after all, Word of God, like any other genre in the Bible. For it being Word of God, it's a revelation. When it's a revelation, meaning is not given by readers, but established by the author. For meaning to be understood, readers, like us, must first put ourselves into the writer's shoes before we take out our own shoes to wear. And today, I'll talk about Psalm 133. Psalm 133 is another example of a psalm very commonly taken out of context, and as a result, misunderstood. It's a very short one, with only three verses. But in most time, we get lost after verse 1. So what this psalm is all about, let's read it, and, and see if you understand what, what it really means after reading it. I'm going to ask Michaela to, to read it for us. Psalm 133. Thank you. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life furthermore. Thank you. So after reading it, after listening to God's word, let's, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for, for preserving this beautiful psalm to us. It's only three verses, but we ask that you grant us the, risk, the wisdom, uh, the, the humbleness in us to, to, to be able to understand what you really mean to us. Uh, and to obey your word and also to, to, to lift out your word uh, so that your will be done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, some of you might be familiar with this psalm, at least with verse 1. And what do you think this psalm wants to teach us? What context does this psalm apply to? In what situation would you apply the teaching of this psalm? Maybe at a member's meeting, especially when we have to decide on certain controversial issues, like transfer in? Probably not. The, the reason I said that, because the psalm has been understood or misunderstood by many to be about unity. We get this from verse 1 that it causes brothers, sisters are implied, to live in unity or in harmony. So what are the issues? Well, apart from issues of translation, which I will address later, the issues would be the connection between verse 1 
and the rest of the psalm. What does unity have to do with precious oil poured on our head? What does living in harmony have anything to do with Aaron's beard? And most of all, what does living in, in unity have anything to do with Mount Zion? And because of a seemingly lack of connection, most of us only know verse 1 of the psalm and then ignore the rest. But we need to know that whether verse 1 is, uh, whatever verse 1 is about, it is very much connected to verse 2 and 3. Because both, both verses begin with, it is like. Verse 2 and 3 are illustration of the calling that the psalmist makes in verse 1. So if we think we understand what verse 1 is about, but find it difficult to connect with verse 2 and 3, then the chance is that we have not got it right yet for verse 1. You following me? Let me be direct here to start with. The psalm is not about unity. It is about something else. Well, first, let me deal with the translation issue for verse 1. When we read our current translation, it cannot help but to be led to put our attention to the key word unity or harmony in some translations. But in fact, the original Hebrew version did not put the focus on unity. Now to illustrate that, I'm going to read a very literal translation to you. It's, it's like a word-for-word -word translation. It goes like this. Look, how good and how beautiful. Brothers live together. Yes, or oh, that's right. Let's go together. Now this is very literal, almost verbatim translation. So it sounds quite fragmented. But for this particular verse, it's easier to discover the key point when we read it this way. Verse 1, in its original sense, focuses not on the condition of living together, but on the action of living together. This verse is not about how we live together, but whether we live together or not. This verse is less about living together in unity, but more about just living together. Verse 1 wants to say that it is good for brothers and sisters to live together. Unity and harmony is an afterthought. We first need to start living together. So Psalm 133 calls people who were not living together to go, move, and live together. Probably it's not in the same house or, or even on the same street, but in the same community or in the same city. But later, in verse 3, we are told that the city is Zion or Jerusalem. The psalmist is calling his people to go and move and live together in Jerusalem because it is good and pleasant. The psalmist wants his people to think living together in Jerusalem is in fact a good and pleasant thing. Then he gave a few illustrations. Verse 2 and 3 tell us how good the psalmist is thinking about living together. He gave a total of three illustrations. I'm going to show you 
the more the more word for word translation in NASB, and you'll get the idea. It says it is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard. And then even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes. And then it is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing life forever. In these verses, the psalmist employs three things, three things, that would come down to illustrate the blessing, the goodness of living together. And these three things are precious oil, Aaron's beard, and dew of Hermon. These three things show the readers of the psalm why living together is good. Unfortunately, none of these things are common to us, except Aaron's beard, which we get right there. <laughs> but from this original sense, none of these things are common to us. So we need to dig a little deeper to get the meaning. First is precious oil. This is not cooking oil. No one would pour cooking oil on their head unless you want to deep fry it. The oil is a diluted, more watery olive oil with spices such as myrrh or cinnamon added to provide pleasing aroma. This kind of oil is, is highly related back then to social honor. First of all, precious oil works like our face cream. It, and it helps to preserve beauty. More important, precious oil provides good smell. In the ancient world, people don't go to bath or shower very often. So as a result, people smell. So they need this oil to cover their body odor, much like perfume these days. But normally, people only apply a few drops of the oil. But pouring on head and to the beard, it means ex extravagant luxury, which translates into a high degree of social honor. Second, living together is good because it's like Aaron's beard that comes down to the edge of his rope. Well, the first question is, why Aaron? Or, or even, who Aaron? Who's Aaron? Other than this one. Who's Aaron here? Well, we, we know it's Moses' brother, right? It's Moses' brother. But why him? Why not the more well-known biblical figures such as Moses himself, or maybe King David, or, or Abraham? Well, maybe they did not have beard. After all, Michelangelo showed us that David is a very clean-shaved guy. But that's not possible, really. This is a very young David, but, but normally this is not possible because every man in the Middle East grows beard. A man's beard, like precious oil, is closely related to social honor. But why Aaron? Well, for the psalmist, to mention Aaron instead of other more prominent figures in the Bible, such as Moses or David, there's only one reason. The psalmists want to refer to the worship of Yahweh. Whenever Aaron is mentioned in the Bible, he is related to priesthood. 
Aaron is the first high priest. He is the icon for priesthood. For priests to have dignity, beard is part of the package. Leviticus 21, 4-5, it says, He, a priest, must not make himself unclean for people related to him by marriage and so defile himself. That's the no-no part. And the yes-yes part, or, or the continued no-no, actually. Priests must not shave the head or shave the edges, shave off the edges of the beards or cut the bodies. Well, shave off the edges of the beard, let alone the whole beard. So, so Aaron, being the iconic figure of priesthood, has beard that grows to the edge of his robe. It's like Movember for him all year round. The psalmist is picturing an image that translates into spiritual dignity. The dignity of worship to Yahweh. So, it is good to live together because first, it's like precious oil that gives social honor. Second, it's like Aaron's beard that gives spiritual dignity. So now, to his first illustration, the psalmist says, it is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. Hermon is a very tall mountain north of Galilee. It's about 9,000 feet high. So, so the top of it is covered with snow all year round. And in Israel, because of its desert climate, it's really dry and hot in summer. And during the, the dry season with little or no rainfall, the only thing that keeps the land moist is mountain dew. I mean, this mountain dew. The, the dew from the mountain keeps the land in its minimal moist level. Otherwise, it would be impossible to plow in the next agricultural season. And, and dew is, is necessary for survival. And the mountain that is most famous in providing dew is Mount Hermon, which means sacred mountain. Dew is seen as a divine blessing. So the psalmist says that when brothers live together, they can expect divine blessing to come down to Zion, which means Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the key location of this psalm. The psalmist is not asking his brothers to, live, to, to go and live together anywhere, no. The psalmist is calling his brothers to go and live together in Jerusalem. Because in the conclusion, the psalmist emphasizes that for there, the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. The psalmist specifies that there, Jerusalem, is where the blessing will come down to. It's location specific. So, if we connect the concluding line and the opening line, it will mean that it is good and pleasant for brothers and sisters to live together in Jerusalem. Now, you have a pretty good understanding of the literal meaning of this psalm. You have understood that the psalmist is calling his people to go and move and, and, and live in Jerusalem together. If they do that, they would be blessed with social honor, like precious oil, spiritual dignity, like Aaron's head, a beard, and God's providence, like Herman Dew. 
Now we now need to pay attention on the direction of where these blessings come from. All three illustrations stresses that the blessings come down from above to below. This is the key to this psalm that it is not about unity. Unity is about relationship between people. It's horizontal relationship. Whenever Bible talks about blessing in unity, it almost always stresses horizontal benefit. One of such passages is found in Ecclesiastes 4, uh, verse 9 to 12. It says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, they will lift up his fellow, or the one will lift up his fellow. Again, if two lie down, then they have warmth. And if a man prevail against him that is alone, the two shall withstand him, and threefold cord is not quickly broken. So when the Bible talks about blessing in unity, it almost always stresses horizontal blessings, such as productivity, mutual assistance, or stronger defense. But the psalmist in 133 very deliberately says that the blessings from their living together in Jerusalem are from above. We get vertical blessings when we have right relationship, not with each other, but with our Heavenly Father. We get vertical blessings when we demonstrate obedience or trust to God, not unity and friendship among brothers. Okay? So, the call to go and live together in Jerusalem is an act to obey and trust God. Now, you can probably feel it now that the psalmist is trying so hard to convince his people to go and live in Jerusalem. He is selling this idea to, to his people to go and live together in Jerusalem. But why? Well, obviously, no one would in their normal mind want to go and live there. Then we ask, Jerusalem is the holy city. It is the capital of the nation of Israel. Why then would Israelites not want to go to live there? Or a better question, when did Israelites not want to go and live in Jerusalem in their history? Is there a period in Israel's history that its people did not want to go and live in Jerusalem? Is the psalmist based on a specific historical context in writing this psalm? Well, given what we have known so far about this psalm, we can be very confident that this psalm is based on the period of post-exile or even return from captivity. It is highly likely that this psalm was written in the period in the book of Nehemiah. It is because it is exactly then the Israelites did not want to move back and live together in Jerusalem. But now we need to ask the question, why did people not want to move back and live together in Jerusalem? In Nehemiah 7, it says, Now the city, Jerusalem, was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So, other than the temple and the city wall, there's nothing, really nothing in Jerusalem in Nehemiah's time. 
no infrastructure, no community facilities, no schools, no meaningful jobs. Lands were probably too dry and desolate to plow and grow. After the city being under siege and, and destroyed by Babylon about a century ago, now in Nehemiah's time, there is nothing but hardship or even hostility in Jerusalem. It's the least desirable place to live at that time. People prefer to settle themselves in other regions in the outskirts. Jerusalem was anywhere but. With the holy city still in ruin and desolation, God's people had lost their social honor. With the second temple already built, but nobody lived there to maintain the daily worship, Israelites had lost their spiritual dignity. With the promised land being empty, no one lived there. God's providence had been withheld. See now how we can connect all three verses together in Psalm 133 with a proper context. Nehemiah 11 told us how Nehemiah was resolved to deal with the situation. It says there, Now the leaders of the people live in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men and women who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. What an efficient way to make nominations. I mean, Mary? Mary? Yeah, our nomination committee head would be thrilled if we can just cast lots to get nomination done. I mean, there there are even apps to help facilitate lots casting. I mean, you you go cast lots, you search for apps, there's so many of them. I mean, it's it's so, so convenient. Oh, oh, you'll be the next deacon. Oh, you'll be the next moderator. Imagine how much time we can save. But back to Nehemiah, the background of Psalm 133, imagine if you cast a lot, that shows that you are the one out of ten people who have to move to Jerusalem. Imagine you have to go home and tell your wife about your lot casting result. You have to tell your kids that they have to well, they, no, they can no longer live near their friends. You think about what you're going to do in the devastated land in Jerusalem. Your anxiety level will start to go up. However, the key, verse, the, the key phrase in this passage here in Nehemiah 11 is not casting lots. Rather, it's in verse 2. It is the phrase, willingly offer. The original Hebrew words of this phrase carry the meaning of being obedient to God or trusting God. It is in this situation, uh, casting lot is a way to discern God's will. The lot's cast represent God, God's calling. If your lot is cast, it would mean that it is God's will to call you to move and to live in Jerusalem as part of the pioneer group that to rebuild the holy city. If your lot is cast, it would mean that God has chosen you for this assignment. Then you can do one of the following three responses. You can refuse first 
You can refuse to comply. Rejecting what God has willed you to do. Second, you can submit yourself to the result, but bearing grudges to God for choosing you. Three, you can willingly offer yourself in obedience to the casting result, trusting that God's will is better than your own. Verse 2 said that only those who willingly offer themselves, option 3, would receive blessing. Because it is the only option that really put God's will above our own. And trust God's wisdom more than our own. This is the background of Psalm 133. The beginning and the end of the psalm says, How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. And then at the end, For there, Jerusalem, the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. The psalmist, maybe working with their leader Nehemiah, is encouraging his people to make the decision, not by sight, but by faith. In those people's sight, all they would see are impossibilities. All they could see with their physical eyes were one obstacle after another. But Psalm 133, together with its background provided in the book of Nehemiah, teaches us a couple of things in responding to God's calling. First, we should always put God's will above ours. Moving to Jerusalem involves a lot of personal sacrifices. Even though Psalm 133 talks about blessings coming from above, it does not mean that those who go and move into the holy city are exempt from hardship and suffering. Remember, only one out of ten people was cast to move. It means that only a, ma- a minority of people are called to endure such hardship. If you are the one out of ten people, your friends and relatives might still be enjoying their abundance outside Jerusalem, while you and the little group of others are enduring the desolation inside Zion. It would be hard not to feel bitter. But bitterness only arises if you don't believe what you are called to do actually means a lot to God. You can see this call as a curse, or you can see it as a privilege. If you are called to serve God in some capacity, that you have never thought of. And by looking around your life, responding to such call would cause you much inconvenience or even a lot of sacrifices. You might need to lower your standard of living, reduce your time and freedom to seek life enjoyment, or accept a social status not as recognized as what your peer group has. In responding to God's call, Don't jump too much ahead into looking at the blessing first. Sit down first and calculate the cost to see if you're willing to pay. There's always a cost to respond to God's call. The question is not whether or not there is a cost. The question is whether or not you're willing to pay the cost. The second thing Psalm 133 teaches us is that we should never judge what God calls us to do by sight, by what we can see 
looking around. Psalm 133 changes our direction from looking around to looking upward. As I said, there's always a cost to seek God's will and answer His call. But is it worth it? If our values are based on what we can see around us, a.k.a. the world, then our willingness to pay the cost to answer God's call will be close to zero. But if we change our direction from looking around to looking upward, from looking at blessings not found horizontally, but vertically, then we will be able to see how worthy it is to respond to God's gracious call. Well, this is what Jesus did when he was going onto the cross. Instead of looking around him, he did. But he did not fix his eyes on what's around him. He looked upward. He prayed to the Father. He set sight on above. But Jesus, answering the Father's call, would cost him his life. But by looking upward, instead of sideways, he is so convinced that it is worth it. So Jesus said, Yet not my will, but yours be done. He then willingly offered his life as an atoning sacrifice on our behalf. So now, if you have a sense of God's calling, that you are to move out of your comfort zone and do what he assigns you to do, and if you have struggles in discerning his will or even obeying his call, Come talk to us. Talk to me. Talk to Pastor Gilbert or Pastor Brian or maybe some of our deacons. We want to offer you our prayer and guidance. I have had a lot of struggles when God first called me into ministry. And I still have struggles in different stages of my ministry life. I have my stories to share with you as well. So I encourage you to share your story with us. So brothers and sisters, look how good and how beautiful. Brothers live together. Yes, that's right. Let's go together. May this beautiful psalm give you the guidance you need, the courage you desire, and the perspective you require to spend your life in what is truly worth and to pursue a purpose that makes a difference eternally. Let's pray together. Holy Father, it is truly your amazing grace to be called your children. And your call to us is not just to be saved, but also to serve you. So I pray especially for those among us today who are struggling in discerning your perfect will or in obeying the call that you have already made. God, please help them to walk not by sight, but by faith. Give them the courage they need to fend off the worries inside, and the temptation outside. Help all of us to never stop seeking and following your will. Help us to live our lives that would make sense to you, not to us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.